Uh, we are in week eight of nine weeks in Genesis. And so uh, if you want to follow along, you can stick your Bible uh, or your finger in Genesis 41 and we'll get there in a minute. But for those of us that have not been along on the journey thus far, or we have short-term memory issues and we have forgotten what happened last week, we're going to do a brief recap uh, because I find it's always helpful. Last week, we started talking about Joseph, right? We started with Adam and Eve a couple weeks ago. We went to Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. We started Joseph's life story last week, and we learned that his life story was kind of like a roller coaster. Um, he was the favorite son of the favorite wife, and he got a robe, and it was wonderful, but then he had some sibling trouble, and his brothers tried to kill him, and then they decided they weren't gonna kill him, they were just gonna sell him into slavery, and then he ended up in slavery, but then he ended up being in charge of his master's house, but then he got accused of adultery, um, and then he got put in jail, but then he got some favor there, and so he got to be in charge of the entire jail, and that's, you know, one of these things, and then he's hanging out in jail, and he meets two guys, a baker and a cup bearer, um, and they were put in jail because, um, they were accused of trying to kill the Pharaoh, which you don't, I mean, that you just don't do that. That's not a good thing. So they were put in jail because they were accused of trying to kill the Pharaoh. Now, Joseph is in charge of the jail at this point, and so he gets to know the baker and the cupbearer, and time is passing, and he knows them, and so forth and so on. And at some point in time during their in incarceration, they have a dream. Each one of them has a different dream. Both of them have similar dreams. Oh, we both have a dream that they will have their heads lifted up before the king. So um, Joseph starts to interpret their dream for them. They go, what does this dream mean? We don't understand what this means. Why, the baker says, is there a bunch of bread on my head and birds are eating it? Okay, so Joseph interprets the dreams for these two. Uh, the dream for the cupbearer is your head will be lifted up and you will be restored to your position that you had with the pharaoh. And the baker, unfortunately, his head will be lifted up off of him uh, and he will not survive the experience. Now, Joseph says, you guys are about to be called out uh, to be before the Pharaoh. Uh, it's been the one year mark. You're gonna go get your sentencing. Remember me before the Pharaoh, right? Translation, I've been in jail a really long time. Help me get out of here, okay? So the two go before Pharaoh and um, they're dreams and the way that it was foretold by Joseph actually come true. The cupbearer has his head lifted up from sadness and he is restored back to his right position and he was found innocent of trying to kill the Pharaoh. Unfortunately, the um, baker did not have such a great fate and his head was lifted up off of him and he was hung before the country as a sign of don't kill the Pharaoh, try and kill the Pharaoh, right? So uh, the Baker was unable to tell Pharaoh, Joseph interpreted my dream correctly because he died. The cupbearer should have told Pharaoh, this is exactly what this guy in jail said would happen, but he forgot. For two whole years, he forgot. He forgot for two whole years until Pharaoh had two very troubling dreams. One dream, and I want you to think of this in terms of dreams. Like, have you guys all had weird dreams before and you wake up and you're like, I don't know how I feel about that. I feel a little bit weird about the thing that was in my dream. It, dreams are weird and, and sometimes circumstances and places and things don't make sense. And Pharaoh has two very troubling dreams. 
one of seven fat cows, just enormously large fat cows hanging out. And then suddenly, up out of the Nile, come seven really skinny looking cows. And those skinny looking cows wander up to those big fat cows and in weird dreamy worlds, unhinge their jaws and swallow those fat cows. Disturbing stuff of nightmares, okay? Second dream Pharaoh has some of these massive ears of corn, just big and huge, and you just want to sink your teeth into it with some butter and some salt after they were on the barbecue. Just, right? Yes. Ears of corn that are so good looking. And then there are seven skinny little ears of corn. And I don't know how corn walk, but they came up to those big fat ears of corn, and corns don't have mouths that I know of, but they, in dreamlike fashion, opened up their mouths and swallowed the big fat ears of corn. Freaky, okay? Pharaoh is a little bit weirded out at this point. He cannot figure out what these dreams mean. So he calls in his magicians and his seers and his wise men and all of his counsel. He tells them the dreams and they're a little bit weirded out too. They cannot figure out what these dreams mean. And it is then, and only then, that the cupbearer goes, oh, <clears throat> there's this guy in jail. It's a weird story, Pharaoh, but he interpreted two dreams very correctly, and I think that you should bring him here and listen to him interpret these dreams for you. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph. Now, the uh, Egyptians are fastidiously clean people, um, especially Pharaoh, like germaphobic kind of clean, my kind of people, okay? And, um, and you don't go from the grossest jail situation to the room with Pharaoh without some sort of cleansing process. So Joseph has to be shaved from head to toe. Kid you not, it's in the Bible. They shaved him, they washed him, they put new robes on him, and then he could go see Pharaoh. Now he's super bald, in new clothing, and he's standing before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells him the dreams. Joseph says, with the help of the Lord, I will interpret these for you. And he explains the two dreams, though different, mean the same thing. That the seven fat ears of corn and the seven fat cows mean there will be seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt. There will be so much food, it will be insane. Following those seven years, the seven skinny years of corn and the seven skinny cows that swallow up the fat ones will be, there will be such a famine, such a drought, such a lack of food that you will forget the abundance ever existed. It will be as if those years never existed. Seven great years followed by seven horrible years. Pharaoh looked at Joseph and realized something in the moment. And this is where we are picking up in our story in Genesis chapter 41, verse 38. It will be on the screen. Bear with me as we read it. It's a, it's a nice chunk of scripture, but it tells a wonderful story and we'll digest it a little bit together. Genesis 41, starting in 38. Pharaoh said to his officials, isn't this the man we need? Are we going to find anyone else who has God's spirit in him like this? Now, Let's just, right there, we'll pause. This is a pagan Egyptian pharaoh 
who worships how many gods? I don't know, so many gods. And he recognizes that none of his magicians, none of his seers, none of his court, none of those false gods were able to tell him with satisfaction what this dream was gonna mean. But this guy pulled from the pit of jail was able to, by the help of God's spirit, interpret these dreams. Pharaoh recognized that Joseph's God was more powerful than the other gods. Are we going to find anyone else who has God's spirit in him like this? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, you are the man for us. God has given you the inside story and no one is as qualified as you in experience or wisdom. From now on, you're going to be in charge of my affairs. All of my people will report to you. This happens over and over in Joseph's life, right? So he was in the pit, and then he got sold in slavery, and then he was put over Potiphar's house, second in command, only to Potiphar, right? And then he got put in jail, right? That we didn't do anything wrong. And then he got put as second in command over the jail, right? And then he gets pulled out of jail, and now he's, promotion, second in command over Egypt. That's crazy sauce. Only as king, Pharaoh says, will I be over you. The only person who has more authority than Joseph is the Pharaoh. So Pharaoh commissioned Joseph, I'm putting you in charge of the entire country of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his own signet ring from his own finger and slipped it on Joseph's hand. The ability to buy and sell all of the authority of the Pharaoh was wrapped up in that ring. And then he outfitted him in robes of the best linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Funny, he got his wonderful robe that he had from his dad. It was ripped off of him, right? Now he's being restored to him a robe of authority. It's, it's interesting, this robe thing. Um, he puts the second-in-command chariot at his disposal. And as Joseph was riding around, people were shouting, Bravo! Because Joseph was in charge of the entire country of Egypt. Now Pharaoh told Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, but no one in Egypt will make a single move without your stamp of approval. That's some significant trust, is it not? If you had a business and then there was another person and you said, I know that I'm the guy that owns the business, I mean, ultimately, but you're gonna make all the calls. Everybody's gonna see, this is significant trust for a kingdom. Then Pharaoh gave Joseph an Egyptian name. I'm not gonna try and pronounce it, but it means God speaks and he lives. He also gave him an Egyptian wife the daughter of Potiphar, not related to the guy whose household he was in charge of. And Joseph took up his duties over the entire land of Egypt. Now, what you need to know is that in that day and age, you were not part of Egyptian family. Um, the reason that Pharaoh gave him an Egyptian wife, married him into Egyptian culture, was to say, you are being adopted into our family, our culture now. You are part of us which means you actually do have the authority to rule over my people. You're no longer someone who doesn't belong, but you are someone who belongs. This is interesting. Joseph was 30 years old, 30 years old, when he was put in charge of Egypt. And he went to work for the Pharaoh. And as soon as Joseph left Pharaoh's presence, he began to work in Egypt. And during the next seven years of plenty, the land produced bumper crops. That means so many things. There was so much food. And Joseph gathered up the food of the seven good years in Egypt, and he stored the food in cities. In each city, he stockpiled a surplus from the surrounding fields. Joseph collected so much grain, it was like the sand of the ocean, and he just finally kept keeping track of how much there was. Joseph had two sons born to him before the years of the famine. The daughter of Potiphar, uh, the priest of On, was their mother. 
He named the firstborn Manasseh, saying, God has made me forget all of my hardships and my parental home. A translation, it's not that he forgot his parental home. It's just that he has found a home now. And so the sorrows of the past are being replaced by joys of the moment. Okay? Um, and his second son was named Ephraim, saying, God has made me fruitful in the land of my sorrow. Do you remember the blessing that is passed down from generation to generation? You will be fruitful and multiply. God is sustaining that promise, even though Joseph is in a foreign land with foreign gods, marrying a foreign wife. There is still the blessing that is being passed down. Then Egypt's seven good years came to an end, and the seven years of famine arrived, just as Joseph had said. All countries experienced famine, and Egypt was the only country that had bread. When the famine spread throughout Egypt, the people called out in distress to Pharaoh, calling for bread, and he told the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. As the famine got worse all over the country, Joseph opened the storehouses. He sold emergency supplies to the Egyptians, and the famine was very bad. Soon the whole world was coming to buy supplies from Joseph. The famine was bad all over. I don't think we've ever experienced a famine like that. Um, where the entire world is in such dire need of bread. And this is what the world was experiencing. Now, what I love about the Old Testament is it's like a Where's Waldo for Jesus, okay? Um, you guys are familiar with Where's Waldo? Yeah. Yes, it had nuts. I get some blank stares. Okay, so in case you don't know, Where's Waldo is the seek and find book. Waldo wears a red and white striped shirt, has a cane, and a red and white hat with a little ball on the top, right? And you open up a page, and it's just a scene of red and white stripes. People at the beach or at the bus stop, and everybody seems to be wearing the same thing, and everybody looks like Waldo, but there's only one Waldo. Um, and so you have to look and spend hours crossing your eyes trying to find the one Waldo all of the pages. I had several of these books. They occupied me as an only child when I was a kid. Um, needless to say, I have grown up and I have found that the Old Testament is very much like a Where's Waldo, but for Jesus. That there are a lot of little pictures that look a lot like the story of Jesus in the Old Testament, but they are incomplete, slightly flawed, because they are not Jesus. But they point us to Jesus. They give us a little snapshot of what God is working out down through time, through his people, Joseph, this moment happens to be one of those moments for us. So um, let me tell you a little bit about Joseph's story. We're going to recap and then look at today. Joseph is a 17-year-old, right? We looked at this last week. Didn't do anything terrible. He was a 17-year-old kid in his family's home. Didn't do any wrong to his brothers. Never did anything horrible yet. His brothers decided to kill him. Didn't do anything to deserve it. Um, by the grace of Reuben, the oldest, they said, oh, we won't kill him. We'll just betray him. We'll throw him into a pit. That's the word they use in most translations. Um, it, it's that empty well, right, where they tossed him. But the word pit that they use is actually translated Sheol, which is hell or the depths of death. So um, we read in scripture that his brothers tossed him into a pit, death, anticipating that he would die, but then they thought better of it. They thought, you want to know what? That's not good enough. We got to get a little something, something on the side. We're going to, even though he didn't do anything wrong to us, 
we're going to betray him and sell him for silver. And so they sold him to some slave traders, um, and ultimately he ended up in Potiphar's house, right? It was okay for a while, but then he was accused of wrongdoing, and he hadn't done anything wrong with Potiphar's wife. And again, Scripture tells us he was thrown into a pit, jail. That's what they called it in the language, the pit, the same word, sheol, death. It was where you went to experience death and sadness. He endured all kinds of evil in his life, though he never did anything to deserve that kind of evil. He wasn't out looking for it. He was in the pit. He was uh, given some authority in that place, but he was still in jail until one day the king called for him. And the king said, I'm going to pluck Joseph out of the pit and I'm going to clean up his appearance and I'm going to put him in front of me and give him a robe of authority and I'm going to give him a signet ring and I am going to give him rulership over a nation. And then Joseph has all this authority. People uh, yelled bravo wherever he went. Everywhere he went, yay, Joseph, okay? And he was the man in charge. He had all of the authority at his disposal. And we've seen Joseph in his life have moments of authority and moments of deep trial. And in neither one of those places did he use them as an excuse for sin. Um, when he was in deep trial, he never once said, woe is my life, I might as well make myself happy and get away with what I can. He never leveraged his authority to squish his enemies. He was faithful in what the Lord gave him, when the Lord gave it to him, and he was steadfast. And slowly but surely, as he was faithful and little, the Lord just kept increasing his realm of authority, his fear to oversee until he was now, by the hand of the king, overseeing the entire nation of Egypt. So what did Joseph use his authority for in the nation of Egypt? Joseph used all of the authority that he had to provide bread for hungry people. That's what he spent his years doing. He spent his years overseeing most of Egypt's stuff, but his primary concern was to fill storehouses with bread so that when hungry people would be hungry in years of famine, they could come and purchase bread to live. Joseph's authority was used to feed people. That's pretty significant. Now, I tell you that Joseph gives us a sneak peek at Jesus. Let me reframe this story a little bit for you and see if I left the name of Joseph out, what would it sound like, okay? There was this young man who walked the face of the earth. And he lived righteously. He didn't do anything wrong to anybody. He lived a good life. But those that were closest to him had a big problem with him. They just didn't like him, rubbed them the wrong way. So they decided they were gonna try and kill him, but that didn't really work out. So instead they betrayed him, sold him for some pieces of silver, and he was carted away into slavery, which he couldn't escape from. While he was enslaved, he endured all kinds of hardships and people making fun of him. Um, and while he was in the pit, he suffered all kinds of evil. But at one point, when it seemed the darkest in his life, he was in the pit, trapped, suffering evil for nothing he ever did. The king came. And the king plucked him out of the pit and dusted him off and set him down in front of him and gave him robes, new robes, and a signet ring. 
and said, I'm going to give you authority over all of my kingdom. There is no one else in charge but you over my kingdom. And then, now in charge of the kingdom, he uses his newfound authority to open the storehouses and provide bread for people so that hungry people might have life. Now, that is simultaneously the story of Joseph and the story of Jesus. They are one and the same story. The thing is, uh, Joseph just gives us a sneak peek. Jesus did it perfectly. Okay, so here's where the story changes between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph was thrown into a pit twice, and he avoided death twice. Jesus was thrown into the pit once, and he did not avoid death. He actually, the pit that he went into was the pit of death. He went all the way down into death. This is where one of the things differs. Jesus went all the way to the grave, endured all of the wrath that God has for all of sin, for all people, for all time, in his body, on the cross, the day that he died. And then the king came and lifted him out of the grave, gave him new robes of righteousness, and extolled him above every other name so that there is no other name that you go to for the bread of life. I want to read a handful of scriptures that talk about this. If you want to follow along, you can. You can go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20-ish. This is part of this beautiful poem that is written about Jesus. God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The right hand, right? The the, it's the position of authority. God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And he was far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all all things to the church, which is the body and the fullness of him who fills all. So Jesus went to the pit, died in our place for our sins, and then God the king took him out of the pit, restored him to life, and gave him the status of above every other thing. He gave him the authority, and he gave him robes. Did you guys know that in Revelation chapter 1, uh, 13 through 18? Uh, John is having this vision of heaven, of what heaven is going to look like, and of Jesus Christ in heaven. And it says this, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands representing the Holy Spirit of God, the perfection of God. And then in Revelation 1, verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of the presence of the Holy Spirit, stands... One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. 
And then he continues to describe Jesus in a mighty way. The hairs of his head were white like wool, white like snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the resurrected Jesus in all of his glory and authority in heaven. It's awesome. And John is describing it to us because Jesus was no longer in the pit, right? He had been through death, come out the other side, and now he's got the resurrected glory body that Jesus has, ruling and reigning with all authority. John chapter 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth gospel, fourth book in the New Testament. John chapter 17, Jesus is talking to God, the Father. He's praying a prayer, the high priestly prayer, and he says this, this is before he's um, executed. Jesus spoke these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. 17 verse one, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so the son can glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This idea of Jesus's authority God was giving Jesus authority over all flesh, not one nation, not a period of time, not one people group, over all creation, all flesh. And what was Jesus' sole point in having that authority? To give life. Jesus' whole purpose to have authority over all of creation was to open up the storehouses of heaven and freely give life to anyone who had come and take it. The beauty of this story uh, is Joseph gathered all this food and all this grain, and when people were hungry, they had to come by, right? And when they ran out of money, they sold their land and their cattle and themselves. With Jesus, it's, the economy is a little different. Jesus has, A, a storehouse that will never run out, and B, you can come and eat freely. There's no payment. You can't earn the bread. In fact, if you try and pay for it, you don't get it. The thing is, Jesus wants to open the storehouse and overwhelm you with the flood of life he has. Jesus himself said in scriptures, I am the bread of life, right? This is supposed to draw us back to the manna in the wilderness. This is supposed to draw us back to the bread that Joseph gave out because it literally was the bread of life for the people in the nation of Egypt and the world as a whole. Jesus is the bread of life for us and he tells us, if you are thirsty, come and drink and I will give you water that will cause you never to be thirsty again. If you are hungry, come and eat and you will have bread that will fill your soul. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other person by which you will get this life from, Jesus says. Very similar to when Pharaoh said, there is no one else in Egypt that you need to answer to except Joseph. If you want the bread of life from the storehouse, go see Joseph. Jesus is saying, listen, if you want the bread of life from the storehouse of heaven, there's nobody else you can see except me, Jesus, and I won't charge you for it. I will just give it to you. So come to me, all ye who are weary and hungry and thirsty and tired and worn out and covered in sin and dust and dust, and, and you've been in the pit of life forever and ever and always. Just come on over to my storehouse because it's free and I'm giving it out. And that's what Jesus does perfectly. Amen. Joseph gave us a picture of that. Jesus did it perfectly. And we just get to reap the benefit. 
We just get to sit at the feast at the king's table, not in the beggar's position, not in the servant's position, but at an esteemed place in the banquet table of God. And here's, here's the really cool part. Okay, we're going to flip to one more verse. Isaiah chapter 61. There's this, there's this theme of robes that I can't seem to shake in this story. Um, it, it's all through scripture. Robes are fascinating. Robes were given as signs of status. Um, that's why the favorite son of the favorite wife got the robe and nobody else did. Um, Joseph's robe of many colors. And when they wanted to shame him, they ripped the robe off of him saying, we don't recognize your favorite status. We don't honor you. They ripped his robe off. And then um, when he uh, went into uh, the service of the Pharaoh, he was given robes to signify his authority. When Jesus was lifted up above all others, he was given robes of righteousness in the kingdom of heaven. And then um, when we reap the benefits of the life that Jesus is giving us, it reads something like this in Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God for he has clothed me, clothed me with the robes of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's significant. That's the best kind of robe. That's the robe that when God looks at you and he sees Jesus's robes, that's what the righteousness is, is Jesus is not ours. We have been made pure in God's eyes. We have been, like Joseph had to get cleaned up before he went to the Pharaoh. Jesus and the Holy Spirit does a work in our life and cleans us from the inside out, not just the outside, but the inside out. And we get these new robes and it continues to say, he does that for us, these new robes, like a bridegroom decks himself out like a priest with a beautiful headdress or like a, a bride adorns herself with beautiful jewels before a wedding. God is saying, listen, I am preparing for myself a people that are holy and righteous and have abundant life now and forever. And the way that I do that is I lifted myself out of the pit and I'm using my freedom and my authority to give people the bread of life forever and for always. And that is what Jesus does for us. And that is significant and life-changing because that will never, ever run out. The worship team is going to come and lead us in a song. It's an old song with a new chorus that is stuck in there. And it says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Right? It's this idea that everything that we need for life comes from God. The storehouse wide open. The blessings innumerable. Innumer innumerable? Too many to count, right? There are so many that if you stood in front of the storehouse door in heaven when God opened it, you would be swept away. And yet we don't often come expecting much from God. We walk into God's throne room we come and approach the altar for worship and we think maybe at least he won't be angry at me today like i just hope he's not angry at me today i hope we're at least on good terms i hope that he likes me <laughs> you know but we need to realize god doesn't just like you guys he loves you guys and he's not just meagerly parsing out little pieces here and there he is literally dumping the storehouse of heaven upon you if you would but willingly look his direction and say, gimme, gimme. Because that's all he wants us to do is say, gimme, gimme. And he is ready to pour it out in your direction. Lord, we love you. We love you for who you are. 
we love you for what you've done for us. And we stand ready to praise you this morning, ready to worship you because you are ruling and reigning with authority over all flesh, which means us. You've given us life and hope. And some of us are hungry again this morning. Would you fill us up with the bread of life? Would you cause us not to be thirsty? Would you cause us not to hunger for righteousness? Would you cause us to have our heads lifted up to see you in glory? Would you restore us to holiness before you? We know that you long to do this. And so as we praise you now, we praise you with the anticipation of what you will do because of what you promised. And you are a God who does what you say you will do. We are thankful for that. Receive the worship of your people now, we pray. Thank you.